Well, uh, several years ago, I went out to California to visit a sweet little Lebanese woman who eventually became my wife. On my way back home from my visit, I got ready to board a plane that was heading to the great state of Ohio. I have my ticket in hand. I hand it to the lady at the boarding gate. She scans it. She hands it back to me, and I made my way onto the plane and started heading towards, towards the rear of the plane. Only problem was I couldn't find my seat. I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I can't find it. I look down at my ticket, and it says 3F. So I walk back towards the front of the plane, and I'm looking at all the numbers above the seats and above the rows, and I get to row six and row five and row four and row three. And to my utter amazement, row three was not where it was supposed to be. Row three was in first class. Now, at this point, I'm thinking there's got to be some sort of mix-up with my ticket because I did not purchase a first-class ticket. So I look around, and I, well, I look at my ticket, and I look at this sign above the seat again, and sure enough, 3F is in first class. So I look around and make sure nobody's watching, and then I very discreetly slid into my very own first-ever, first-time, first-class seat. Now, immediately, my conscience is stricken with guilt, and I start to have a conversation with myself. It goes something like this. Sean, how can you, in good conscience, sit in someone else's seat in first class? Sean, do good pastors sit in first class seats that do not belong to them? And as I'm having this conversation with myself, something happened. My conscience got distracted by the kind of material I was sitting on. It was leather. It was smooth and so soft, and I started to stroke it. And it wasn't like that coarse, scratchy material that you find back in economy class. This was the highest grade material that a traveler could sit on. Then I noticed the size of the seat. It was huge which was perfect for my big, robust body. <laughs> then I did the unthinkable. I decided I had to test the seat. I just had to know how far back first-class seats go. I was never going to get the opportunity again, so I might as well make the most of it. So I pushed that little button of ecstasy, and do you economy class flyers know what happened? The longer I pushed that in, the farther it went back until it almost was parallel to the floor. Now, in economy class, you get this. Upright, sleeping. <laughs> in case you missed it, let me show you from another angle. Upright, sleeping. <laughs> now, as people were boarding the plane, I started getting paranoid that the stewardess was going to discover that I was sitting on the throne of lies and that she was going to publicly humiliate me in front of everybody. So as I'm contemplating the oncoming shame and I'm thinking of the worst case scenarios, to my utter horror, the stewardess walks down through the plane, stops right at my row, looks down at me, and I quote, she said, sir, can I take your jacket? Being from southern Ohio, I responded, um, sure, would you like my socks as well? <laughs> well, she went and took my jacket, moments later she come back, and this time I knew she was going to call my bluff. Instead, she asked, me, she asked me, would you like something to drink? And I'm like, do you have to ask? 
Uh, I'm starting to get a little full of myself being in first class, you know. So uh, I look around, and then I notice that first class has their very own bathroom. And the dirty folks back in economy class cannot use it. There's even a little red rope gate to keep out all those social lepers. <laughs> and the best part is that they served me a meal, and it was delicious. And after the meal, they gave me not one, but two first-class minutes. Now, I don't know if this is a good time to ask, but Pastor Phil, in all of your travels abroad and everything, have you ever in your life had a first-class mint? Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, after all the mints and the delicious meal and the seat, I am feeling really guilty about sitting in a first-class seat that doesn't belong to me until I remembered something very important. When I booked my ticket a few months before, I was on the phone with the agent, and he asked me, sir, where do you want to sit? To which I replied, I don't know. Just put me wherever you'd want to sit. <laughs> Apparently, he thought first class was a happening place to be. When I first got on the plane, I was expecting economy class kind of treatment, but I ended up with something far better, first class. Sometimes there are things in life that just far exceed our expectations. And if you don't mind me asking, what did you expect when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Were you expecting to receive the meager provisions one might find back in economy class? Or were you expecting to receive the kind of provisions one might find in first class? Do you have more of an economy class kind of expectation when it comes to your faith in Jesus? Where Jesus just provides you with spiritual peanuts? Where Jesus just provides the bare minimum to get you by and what you need for life and godliness? Or do you have a first class kind of expectation when it comes to your Christian faith where you know that Jesus will give you everything you need for life and godliness? Where you know that Jesus has the power to, to save anyone and change anyone radically, including you? Well, this morning, I would like to talk to you about three expectations every blood-bought believer should have about their Savior. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We're going to read from the written, inspired word of God. This is God's love letter to us. So um, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 20, uh, um, and I'll read it to you. Verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and he cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. 
A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, I was reminded many years ago that the messenger is nothing and the message is everything. And so, Lord, I pray that everyone in here would hear the message from your word that Jesus is mighty, and that they would look at him in a fresh new way. So Lord, whoever here needs the most comfort, I pray that you would do that. Whoever's most discouraged, I pray that you would do that. And they would see Jesus high and lifted up, I pray. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to talk to you about three expectations every believer should have about their Savior. And so here's some background to our text. Jesus had just finished crossing the Sea of Galilee during the night with his disciples. And during the night, a furious storm came up, and Jesus stills the storm. And there, Jesus displays his supernatural power over creation. Now, as he gets off the boat and onto dry land, he's going to display his supernatural power over the spiritual forces of darkness. And let me just say from the outset, this is the most extreme case, the most extreme counter with the powers of darkness in all of the Bible. There is nothing like it at all. You see, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all decide to write about it. Now, Matthew 8 states that there are two demon-possessed men, but Mark and Luke decide to talk about one man. Now, this isn't a contradiction, just that Mark and Luke choose to focus on this one man alone. Some of the things we're going to take a look at will not be found in Mark's account, but they are cross-referenced from Matthew and Luke. So here we go, three expectations every believer should have about their Savior. Number one, you should expect a sovereign Savior to possess supernatural power over everything. You and I should expect a sovereign Savior to possess supernatural power over everything. Now, to help understand Jesus' power, we need to understand what kind of challenge he's up against. At the beginning of our text, we see that Jesus is getting out of the boat, and as he gets out of the boat, he's confronted by a man who is demon-possessed. Mark gives us a very vivid description of the man's condition. In verse 2, well, we see it says, uh, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Notice his home. This man came from the tombs. He lived in the tombs. His home was a graveyard. This was a homeless man who felt more at home living amongst the dead than the living. He didn't want to be around anyone, and no one wanted to be around him. This demon-possessed man spent his entire demon-possessed life living in quarantine. 
But notice the man's strength we see in verses 3 and 4. Uh, verse 3 says that uh, the man lived in the tombs and, and he could not be bound by a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. He had superhuman strength. He could tear chains apart. He could break the irons off of his feet. And Mark, Matthew's account tells us that the people had tried to chain him because he was exceedingly violent that no one could pass by. This was a dangerous man. In all likelihood, he had hurt people, maimed people, possibly killed people. He was a terror to everyone in the town. There wasn't a, another human being in the entire village who dared to even get close to him. But the scriptures say that his condition worsened over time. Verse 3 says that they couldn't restrain him anymore. The power of the demons had such a hold on him that nothing could restrain him. But notice his torment in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and he cut himself with stones. The text says night and day he's roaming through the graveyards. He's restless, constantly wandering from the tombs to the hills and back again, looking for some kind of peace and never finding it. No sleep, no rest, just endless torment. Looking for some kind of relief, he finds some stones and he cuts himself over and over and over again. And, and there would always be fresh wounds on his body, blood dripping from his body. His body would have been riddled with scars, caked with blood. Luke 8 mentions that he's naked. He's exposed to the elements, shivering in the cold at night, scorching heat by day. This filthy, violent man would have been a hideous, pitiful sight to behold. Luke also mentions that the man had been in Satan's grip for a very long time. But what this man was experiencing outwardly was nothing compared to what he was experiencing inwardly. The text said he would cry out, and his inner agony was so overwhelming, so unbearable, he would shriek at the top of his lungs day and night. This man was in unbelievable torment. And the more he looked for relief, the worse things got. John Flavel said this, it is a dreadful punishment for God to deliver a man up into the hands of his own fears. I think there is scarce a greater torment to be found in the world than for a man to be his own tormentor and his mind an instrument of torture to his own body. What a dismal life do they live who have no peace by day nor rest by night. The days of such men are terrible days. They wish for the night, hoping it may give them some rest, but their fears go to bed with them. Their hearts pant and meditate terror, and then, oh, that it were day again. That's a picture of this demon-possessed man, always longing for peace and never finding it. And all of his physical attempts to bring relief only brought more anguish. That's why St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. This is as bad as it gets. Man who lived among the dead is in constant torment. Isn't this, as a side note, just a vivid picture of the effects of sin? Isn't it something how sin can come to totally dominate us and control our lives when we leave it unchecked? Isn't it something how sin left unchecked brings isolation and slavery and restlessness and anguish? This is a good reminder that all unaddressed sin will eventually become life-dominating sin. 
That's why someone said sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And this man was paying a hefty price. Verse 6 then states, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran up to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the 12 disciples and I see a naked, hairy man with sharp stones in his hands running from the grave towards my boat, I think I'm just going to put my head down and just keep on rowing. But that's not what the disciples did. They stopped the boat. They got out of the boat. And when the demon-possessed man gets to Jesus, he falls to his knees. Remember, this was a man who was afraid of no one. Remember, this was a man who could not be subdued by change. Remember, this was a man with an unconquerable spirit is now on his knees in terror. And why is that? It's because he's in the presence of the great I am. He's in the presence of the Alpha and the Omega. He's in the presence of Jesus Christ. And and in complete terror, this demon shrieks out a question in verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You see, the demons instantly knew who they were dealing with. They recognized that they were face to face with the king of glory, and they were terrified. And the reason for this dramatic response is that they dreaded being judged before the appointed time. Revelation 9.1 tells us that what awaits them, the abyss, the bottomless pit, Hades, the furnace. And the demons are in absolute terror that Jesus Christ will send them to that place before the appointed time. And if I can just say as a side, the demons had very good theology when it came to their understanding of the supernatural power of the supernatural person standing in front of them. So in verse 9, Jesus asks them what his name is, and he responds, Legion. Now, a legion is a Roman regiment. At full strength, it consists of 6,000 soldiers. Basically, this demon was telling Jesus, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of demons right inside of this man right now, and yet these thousands of demons are cowering in fear at the feet of Jesus. And they beg for mercy. Verses 11 through 13 says this, A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Jesus allows them to go into the pigs, and the pigs commit mass suicide. They all die. The entire herd dies. For you note takers that like to take notes, you can write this in the margin of your notes, a bad day at the office. (laughs) Now don't miss this. Jesus is standing in front of a person so strong that no individual could subdue them and no amount of chains could restrain them. Inside this man are thousands upon thousands of demons and all Jesus has to do is simply say, come out, and they flee at his command. All it took was two words, Come out. This is power. This is supernatural power from a supernatural Savior. The winds obey him. The waves obey him. The demons obey him. And Mark is showing us here in the text that Jesus is sovereign ruler over everything. There's not one square inch in all of the universe where Jesus doesn't have complete and utter authority. He owns it all. He has power over it all. He has complete and total authority over it all. 
Listen, do you personally really believe that? Do you really believe that if Jesus can so much handle a, a legion of demons without so much as breaking a sweat, that he can easily handle all the problems that you're facing? Do you think Jesus can help you with that thing that keeps you up at night? Do you think Jesus can help you with that long-standing forgiveness problem? Do you really think Jesus can help you to love that difficult person in your life? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to set you free from that thing that's been dominating your life for the last 10, 10 years? Does he have the kind of power to help us with those kinds of challenges? Many years ago, there was a Hebrew professor at Princeton Seminary named Dr. Robert Wilson. He could read more than 30 Semitic languages. And Dr. Wilson had one of his former students back by the name of Donald Barnhouse, who had been there 12 years earlier. So he had Barnhouse come in and preach to all the new seminary students. When Donald Barnhouse preached, the former professor, Dr. Wilson, sat down near the front. And after the sermon, Dr. Wilson went forward and shook Barnhouse's hand. He said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse, a little bit confused, asked him to explain, and Wilson replied, well, some men have a little God, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. Then there, then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. How about you? Are you a little godder or are you a big godder? Do you have a, a little God who just doesn't have the power to help you in your time of need? Do you have a weak, anemic Jesus who is unable to help you with your temp temptations? Or do you have a big God, a God who sees everything that you're going through, all of your struggles and all of your temptations, and has the ability to supply the kind of power you need when you need it? If this text teaches anything. It teaches that whatever your view of Jesus is, it's far too small. Can I get an amen? amen? Three expectations every believer should have about their Savior. Number two, you should expect a sovereign Savior to bring about personal, radical transformation in your life. You and I should expect a sovereign Savior to bring about personal, radical transformation in your life. Now look at this. This is truly remarkable. We are peering through a window that is going to reveal the beauty of sovereign grace. We are going to see a spiritual corpse brought to life right in front of our very eyes, and we're going to see this man's absolute radical transformation at the hands of Jesus. So the pig herders run off, and they tell everyone in town that there isn't going to be any more bacon for breakfast. <laughs> when the townspeople come back to check things out, this is what they saw in verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there. Luke 8.35 tells us where he was sitting at. It says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a pretty good place to be sitting after you get saved, right? Well, what was he doing there? What was he talking about? Well, I can tell you one thing for sure. He wasn't talking about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. This formerly demon-possessed man who'd been running up and down the tombs and up and down the countryside, shrieking at the top of his lungs, cutting himself over and over again, beating people up, is now sitting quietly 
at the feet of Jesus, and he's learning. That's what a true convert does. He sits at the feet of Jesus, and he learns truth. Verse 15 also says that he's clothed. Apparently, one of the disciples had an extra cloak with him, and they decided to give it to the man. And this deranged man who did not want anything to do with clothes is now fully clothed. And uh, it also says in verse 15 that he is in his right mind. So what does that mean? He's at peace with God because he has peace from God. He's no longer in anguish. He's no longer restless. He's no longer in, in torment because he has peace with God. His sins are forgiven. And, and don't, don't miss this. The one thing that Mark is showing us is that Jesus is superior to what the world has to offer. We don't really need techniques to change. We really don't need more self-help books. We don't need 12 steps or a pill or more self-esteem. What this man needed, what we need, is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And doesn't that just sound too simple? Like, doesn't that just sound too easy? You mean I just need to take care of business with Jesus and he'll change me? Yeah, that's right, just come to Jesus. And the world scoffs at that kind of thinking. And you know, let them scoff. Because all the world has to offer are empty solutions. All the world has to offer is treatment or coping mechanisms or behavior modifications. They can only put a Band-Aid on our severed arteries. But not Jesus. He doesn't just merely provide uh, or treat our problems or help us cope with them. Jesus brings complete freedom. He brings about personal radical transformation. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter what kind of material that Jesus has to work with. He's not limited by damaged goods. He isn't hindered by your past. He isn't limited by the intensity of your problems. He isn't limited by how long you've been battling your addiction. You're not some sort of special project that's a challenge for Jesus. He can change you. Do you believe that? <laughs> well, the healing of this demon-possessed man should leave us with no doubts. This really should settle the question once and for all if Jesus has the power to transform a person's life. Jesus can overcome everything. So maybe you've lost hope, and maybe you're in here this morning, and you're thinking, I've tried and tried, and I, I just can't change. Maybe you're ready to throw in the towel and say, I, I, it's, I'm a lost cause. Perhaps you've convinced yourself to settle for economy class kind of living. You don't have to, especially when Jesus purchased with his own blood first-class ticket to heaven. If Jesus has the power to radically change a man with no hope, who is going nowhere in complete bondage, then I think it's relatively safe to say that your particular temptations are not going to pose much of a problem for him. If this is true, and it is, do you know what that means? It means if we have a personal relationship with Jesus, you and I really don't have one valid excuse for not changing. We can't blame our parents for our poor choices. We can't blame our spouses for our poor attitudes. We can't blame our coworkers or our circumstances for uh, the decisions we make in life. God wants you and I to throw out all of our excuses as to why we aren't changing. We can and should be changing. And when we come to Jesus, we should expect personal radical transformation. Finally, three expectations every believer should have about their Savior. Number three, expect a Savior to have a job for you. So how does this all conclude? The townspeople are overjoyed that the village madman is delivered, right? They're, they're excited and they praise Jesus that this poor, wretched soul is free, right? 
Sadly, that's not the case. What do they do? Verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. They asked Jesus to leave. They don't merely ask him to leave. They beg him to leave. Luke says, all the people said it. All of the villagers wanted to be rid of Jesus. Now, why, why would they do that, especially after the village lunatic was completely transformed and he was no longer uh, a threat to their safety? You, you would think that if they had a town hall meeting and they got everybody together and they said, we're gonna take a survey and we're gonna see, would you rather have Jesus leave or the village nut job leave? You would think hands down unanimously that they would vote the nut job off the island, right? That would make the most sense, right? But that's not how it goes down. The text says they begged Jesus. Isn't that mind-blowing? How can that be? I'll give you two reasons. Number one, the pigs were more important than the people. The swine were more important than the human soul. Jesus was bad for business and he was harder on their wallets. And they couldn't have someone messing around with their finances. Second reason, I quote from John MacArthur, they see Jesus as far more dangerous to them than this perverted lunatic and all the demons in him. They're more afraid that God may be in their presence than they are that Satan is in their presence. They're comfortable to a degree with Satan. They would rather be terrified by Satan than by God because Satan doesn't impinge on their sinful behavior. They're more comfortable with Satan than God. They're more comfortable with sin than holiness. And that's how all sinners are. It is more comfortable to be in the presence of evil than to be in the presence of righteousness. Now notice the request of the new convert in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with them. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't merely ask to be with Jesus. He begs to go with Jesus. And in case you haven't noticed, there's an awful lot of begging going on in this text. The demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs, and Jesus gives the demons a yes. The villagers beg Jesus to leave, and Jesus gives the villagers a yes. The demon-possessed man asks to go with Jesus, and Jesus gives the man a no. Does anyone else find that a bit odd? Demons, you get a yes. Pagans, you get a yes. Brand new baby believer, you get a no. You see, Jesus had something far better in mind for him. And may I suggest to you this morning, if Jesus is telling you no to something that you've been asking for, it might just be because he has something better in mind for you as well. When Jesus gives him a job, we see in verse 19. In verse 19, it says this. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Go, tell how much the Lord has done for you. Go, tell how a sovereign savior can radically change anyone. Go, tell your neighbors how Jesus can save anyone no matter what they're going through. And Jesus sends out this guy to be a missionary. No classes, no evangelism training, no knowledge of the scriptures. He couldn't even quote the first five books of the Bible. He probably didn't know who Adam and Eve was. He probably thought Sodom and Gomorrah were two people. And you think about this. 
the first preacher Jesus sends out to do his work is a Gentile with a pretty sordid past. Could you imagine what it would have been like the first time he shows up at church and he takes the mic after Tony Magoli's done speaking and he gives his testimony? He starts his testimony. You know the, the guy that was kind of running up and down the hills and spent a lot of time in the graveyards and you know, he was a bit scantily clad and he had sharp stones and he would cut himself and, you know, some people might think he had a bit of an odd personality. Well, that was me until I met Jesus and he changed me. That was the command that Jesus gave him. How does he respond in verse 20? So the man went away and began to, to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. Jesus gave him a job, and he obeys. And that's what a disciple of Jesus does. He receives a call, uh, and he obeys. Day one of his conversion, this man is given a job, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And do you know that just so happens to be your job description and mine if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew 4.19 says this, and, and Tony quoted it this morning. It says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That means he leads, we follow. I will make you, that's talking about change, that's talking about transformation, and he saves us for a purpose. He's got a job for us. And what is that purpose? To make fishers of men, to be a disciple who goes and makes disciples who goes and makes disciples. So let's take a 10-second survey here, or a 10-second test, to see how we're all doing in here this morning. I'd like you to take your pen and your paper, and I would like you to write down the name of one person that you have personally discipled in 2021. You can't include your children or your grandchildren because even unbelievers and pagans will disciple their children and grandparents will do the same. So I would like you on your piece of paper, write down one person that you personally discipled in 2021. Then go ahead and write down a name of one person that you've discipled in 2022. We should all have a name on our piece of paper. And if we don't, then that means we're missing God's call upon our lives. And Jesus doesn't want to condemn you if you don't have a name on your paper, and I don't want to condemn you. And Jesus doesn't manipulate us or guilt us into to doing the Great Commission. It just means that when we are truly overwhelmed by the mercy of Jesus Christ, he gives us a job, and that job is to go out and make disciples for Jesus. And if you're here and you're, you're pricked in your spirit and you're like, well, where do I begin? Just start with this. Number one, just confess. Just confess to the Lord Jesus. Uh, I've lost sight of your calling upon my life. I've been distracted by a bunch of other things. And uh, I've not, I've missed the Great Commission. What's important to your heart has not been important to my heart. What's been dear to you has not been dear to me. So Lord, just please forgive me. And then two, ask for help. Lord, I, I, I need help. Lord, you help this demon-possessed man. I think you'll help me. And if this demon-possessed man can go out and make disciples, I believe you can help me make disciples. Uh, third, identify one person. Just pick one person outside of your family uh, that, that you know that you rub shoulders with. Maybe you're, you go and you have lunch, and they're your wait, waiter or waitress. Maybe you can disciple them like Tony's doing. And then finally, just go obey. Just go obey. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, you know what? I, I'm not making disciples because I, I don't even know if I am a disciple. I, I don't even know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Like, I, I don't have peace. I don't, I don't have peace. I, I have this endless torment. I, I don't know where 
uh, where my eternal destiny is going to be. If that's something that you need and that your God is tapping your heart on right now, Jesus makes it really easy. You just got to tell Jesus what he already knows. You just got to tell him that you're spiritually bankrupt. Just tell him like you're, you're like everybody else in the room, that you're sinful, that you're selfish. You've been living your life for, for you. It's been King me, and you make a terrible ruler over your life, and now you need a new ruler over your life, King Jesus, and he will gladly take away all of your sins. He'll take your sins, and he'll clothe you with his righteousness, and he'll give you a right mind, and you can be at peace with God. If that's something uh, you feel like the Lord is leading you to do, I'm gonna just ask everybody to bow their head right now. Close your eyes. Uh, Lord, I just pray if there's anyone in here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would convict their hearts and help them to realize that there is no one that is too far gone. If you can save this demon-possessed man in chains, you can save anyone. There, there is no challenges for you. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you would help them see the sinfulness of their sin and the goodness of a merciful Savior and that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved this morning. Uh, Lord, I also just pray for those that have maybe uh, lost uh, hope, that maybe they're thinking you really can't change them. Maybe that's just for, for someone else, maybe someone else in their, in their life group, someone else at church, but not them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to believe that every blood-bought believer can and should change with your help, not by willpower, but by your divine grace. And finally, Lord, if there's anyone in here that's lost sight of the mission that you've given them, the, their job assignment to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples who will in turn make disciples, who will in turn make disciples, Lord, help them to get right back on track and to love the things that you love and be excited about what you're excited about. Lord, just give us all a portion of Tony Magoli's spirit for the lost, Lord. That's what I pray. And uh, Lord, I uh, just pray that you would seal these words to our hearts, and in your name we pray, amen. Sean, thank you. You know, there are some personalities that they, um, they lay down a rebuke and you feel like thanking them afterwards. You know, because I feel like I've just been slapped upside the head and I had to sit through it twice today. <laughs> but I feel very called to thank you for that. <laughs> um, and let me just say this, that if you... If you feel in bondage, and I don't know what that is, but if you, if you feel weighed down, if you feel lost, we want to help you with that, okay? We have a prayer team that's going to be up here at the end. We have one more thing to do, so I hope you can just relax for just a little bit. One more thing to do, but we have a prayer team that will be up here at the end. And if you're at a point where you just, today, what you heard was, man, Jesus can deliver me. And you just want some prayer for that? We would love to pray with you about that and help you find that deliverance today. And you can walk clothed and in your right mind in the peace of God that passes understanding, blows our minds. So help, let us help you with that. If, um, if you're here, if you're online and that's the case for you, please reach out to our prayer team. You can do that right now and begin to connect in that way. We want to help you with that. So you want to just stay right here, just hang with us, because um, we, um, t today is the last week that Eric and Jessica Schellner, our youth pastor and wife, are with us 
um, on a Sunday. They're still here for a couple of more weeks, but they're not going to be with us on a Sunday. So we want to spend some time um, praying over them and blessing them and commissioning them uh, to go out and do the work of the Lord. Are you okay with that? So what I want to do is ask, did Eric leave? Oh, there he is. Eric and, Eric and Jessica, come on up. And um, if you're one of our elders, uh, many of them were in the first service, one of our elders or one of our deacons, would you guys come on up here and join us at the front? Because we're going to lay hands on them and we're going to um, bless them and pray over them. We're going to do it as a congregation, but uh, you can bring your wives if you want. If you want to have your wives come and join us, that would be awesome. You want a Kleenex? Anybody have a Kleenex? Where did they go? Did Tony steal them? There we are. Eric, you guys, um, you guys have done some awesome work here in our church, and over the years, we've had the privilege of serving along uh, beside you, and and now God is taking them to another adventure, and um, we want to. I want, to, I want to say to all of you that this is how God works. And he has equipped us to do the things he wants us to do. It would be our will that you guys stay forever. That would be our will. And we, you know, we're not going to impose our will on what God has for you. But sometimes God calls our brothers and sisters away from what he's doing here into something else. And we need to celebrate that. And there was a time, um, I want to just kind of lean into this. <clears throat> At the very beginning of the church, you know, Paul and Silas had been commissioned to go out from the church in Jerusalem and to go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So they went out into the area of Greece and to the ends of the earth with the gospel, and they ended up at a place called Ephesus where they shared the gospel, and many came to faith there in Ephesus, and they started a church, and they... They discipled elders to watch over that church. And then Paul came to a point where he believed the Holy Spirit um, had told him, and it was true, that he was going to have to go leave that area and go back to Jerusalem, and he was going to die. That he was going, that was going to be his final task that the Lord was calling him to. And so they were heading back to Jerusalem, and, and Paul was so moved by the the elders especially, and the people at Ephesus, that he, he stopped in Miletus and he said, go get the elders and tell them to come one more time before I take off for Jerusalem. And he had some words for them as he left them, and I want to leave some words as a con from all of us um, to you guys from the words of, of Paul. Um, but not, we don't have a vision that you're going to go and die over wherever you're going to go, okay? We don't have a vision for that. Um, thank God for that. But, but the reality is, you guys, we don't know if we have tomorrow. I think we already heard that once today. We don't know what God has in store for us. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we just walk out what he's called us to. And that's what Eric and Jessica are about to do. But I want to... Um, as we commission you to go, and we, we want to give you this challenge that Paul gave the elders. Guard yourselves, he said, and guard God's people. Feed 
and shepherd God's flock, which is his church, that he purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as a leader. You guys are going to have an amazing ministry just like you have here somewhere else now. And so um, walk in what he has called you to with confidence because he has called you to it and he's going to equip you to do what he's called you to. He went on to say to them, though, that we know that false teachers like vicious wolves are going to come in among you and not spare the flock. Even some men from your own group from among you will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. And so we're going to be praying over you in just a second, but we're going to be praying constantly for you as you walk the ministry opportunity you have out, knowing that there is going to be massive opposition to the ministry that God has you in and the message that you're going to be um, giving out. So Paul says, so watch out. And what I want you to know that if the times get hard, I want you to remember that we're your family. And we will always be here standing ready to help in any way that we can. So if you get to a point where they're not treating you right, you just come get us. <laughs> and we'll, we'll take care of them. What, what happened? I'm going to turn you loose on them? Is that what you want me to do? Feel yeah, okay. But right now we entrust you to God to the message of his grace that he is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those that he has set apart for himself. We love you and we love the ministry that you have brought to our church here and we can't wait to see what God's gonna do through you and whatever that is. They don't exactly know yet what that's gonna be, but we are confident that God's got some really big plans and um, we're with you, and we're excited for you, even though our hearts hurt that you're going out from, um, uh, from us. But they're going out from us, you guys, because they're still part of us. So would you stand with me, and we're going to pray, and um, we're just going to lay hands on them now and pray over them. If you want to extend a hand out, symbolically, you know, laying hands on them, you may. And um, let's just all agree together as we pray. Lord, I just... I thank you for Jessica and Eric. I thank you for giving them to us as partners in the ministry. I thank you for the work that they have done, the growth that we have seen through their ministry. And we're just asking that you bless them, bless them with supernatural wisdom and strength and confidence as they walk out this next assignment, that you'll lead their their path, they'll lead them on the path, that you'll light the path up for them, that they'll be, they'll have incredible clarity, and in, especially in the weeks and months to come, and that you'll give them a supernatural, I'm going to say supernatural favor with the people that they're going to be ministering to, open up amazing opportunities for them, and give them the strength to walk through it. I pray that you'll protect them from the evil one. And that those who may want to hurt you, Lord, and your ministry and your church or hurt them because of what they're standing for, that you'll put that down and that you'll embolden their message um, in the midst of all of it. So we're trusting you as we send them from this place and we 
we ask you to bless them and to um, shine your light and your countenance upon them and give them peace and expand their territory in amazing ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Can we just, just share how much we appreciate them? Robin, take them out, and, uh, and they're going to just hang out back there. Everybody line up. Give them a great big hug. And um, we love you. As you go out, let's go out in the strength and power of the Lord. God bless you. You're dismissed.